If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 4, as we get, begin in verse 23. But as we begin in verse 23, I want you to know what time period we're going to be reading about. So look back at verse 11. What are the first three words? At that time. It's a prophecy with dual fulfillments. A lot of people write to me and say, I don't understand what's a dual fulfillment prophecy. It means one that's fulfilled in part historically, but yet there's a future fulfillment that will be more complete. So historically, it's looking at the Babylonian captivity. By the time the Babylonian captivity was done, what was left of Jerusalem? Nothing, not a single live person. The city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the gates, the walls were destroyed. The land was utterly laid waste. Is that going to happen in the future at any time? Will the tribulation period come and the judgments of God just burn up whole sections of land, destroy mountains, fill in valleys? Yes. What scripture can we look at in Ecclesiastes that makes us understand what a dual fulfillment prophecy is? Go over to Ecclesiastes. Yeah, what happened before will happen again. So who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon, which means you're going to have to turn back around the time of the Proverbs. And look just after Proverbs. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, what do we read in verse? We'll start in verse 10. Is there anything in which it may be said, see, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after and then, of course, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we have the famous song by the birds. <laughs> to everything there's a time and a season. Turn, 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 right? Yeah. And add to your thought process the book of Amos chapter 3, verse 7, which says, Surely the Lord our God does nothing without he first reveals it through his servants, the prophets. So in this chapter of Jeremiah, God says great destruction is coming upon Judah. Northern kingdom's gone. So we're looking at Judah, the southern kingdom in particular. And it says in verse 11, At that time we said to this people and to Jerusalem, And why will great destruction come from God upon Jerusalem and Judah? Verse 22, where we ended last week, said, For my people are foolish. A fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. They have not known me. Remember John chapter 17? Let's look at John chapter 17 for a minute. Don't lose your spot here. John chapter 17. What does it mean to know God? John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. 
that they may know you, the only true God and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. So what does it mean to know God is to have eternal life. Why do these people that God is bringing judgment upon, why do they not have eternal life? Because they do not know God. What's the test that the Bible gives for do you know God? That's 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So if we think back 2,700 years, give or take 2,500 years, why does God say Judah does not know him? Aren't they keeping his commandments down to the minutest little detail? The answer is no. They have forgotten God. They've forsaken God. They've set him aside. They're not following his commandments, statutes, and judgments. So God simply says, they have not known me. That's well, what makes... First John. That, I'm sorry, First John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Thank you. Yep, we could have read on through 6, but you know me. So we get to verse 23 today. For I beheld the earth. The word for earth can mean either the land of Israel or the entire world. In the days of the Babylonian captivity, it was focused on Israel. In the tribulation period, is the destruction focused on Israel? No, it's focused on the whole world. But we're going to see words that should jump off the page. For I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. Genesis chapter 1. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 1 and see what God means by without form and void. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Talk about going back to the beginning. It says, in the beginning. What's that in Hebrew? Bury sheet. God, Elohim, created Bara. The heavens ate Hashemayim and the earth, the eight Haaretz. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. Remember that. When we get back to Jeremiah, you're going to watch for the darkness. But it will be as totally destroyed in the day of the Lord, many parts of it, as it was in the very beginning. What kind of destruction would that take? A lot, huh? Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. How is the Holy Spirit referred to here? The Spirit of God. Let's go to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Psalm 148, verses 4 to 6. Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. 
But how were they created? Was the earth created with trees and mountains and flowers? And no, it was just a lump. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. But don't people say, yeah, but the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth? Yeah, but which new is that? Is it neos or kainos? It's kainos. Renewed. Not like God put it in a rock crusher, rock crusher and went and got a new erector set and built a new one. But he's going to cleanse it of all sin, all iniquity, all trespasses. Let's go on to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 25 to 26. Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 25 to 26. People are still turning pages. They make those Bible pages awful thin sometimes, don't they? Isaiah 40, verses 25 to 26 says, To whom then will you liken me? Me, it refers to the Lord God. Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. The Holy One, in Isaiah chapter 12, refers to our Messiah Yeshua, who will rule and reign right here on earth. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Well, I guess this was before they decided Pluto wasn't a planet. But it's still not missing. They just changed its name. But the point is what? The Lord God who created the heavens and the earth and created it void and empty. Then did what with it? Then made this beautiful creation that we will see. What will happen next time the earth is with, was, will be without form and void? Will God recreate it and make such a beautiful place out of it that we're just going to enjoy being there? Isaiah 42. Verse 5. Isaiah 42, verse 5. Somebody's mic is open. Is there a question or a comment? Apparently not. Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord. Normally it says the Lord God, doesn't it? Who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it. And spirit to those who walk on it. But, but didn't the earth just evolve out of primordial goo? Billions of years ago? The answer is no. God created it and it was without form and void. And then God did his masterful creation. Isaiah 45 verses 12 and 18. Isaiah 45, verses 12 and 18. Not through 18, but just the two verses. Verse 12 says, I have made the earth and created man on it. 
I, my hands, stretched out the heavens. All their host I have commanded. If we look at John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, who created the heavens and the earth? Messiah Yeshua did. So he's the I. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. Down to verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I love that verse. How many of you were taught growing up that when we die, we go to heaven, we sit on clouds and play harps? And that's our eternal future is in heaven. The scripture says, what was made to be inhabited? The earth. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. And as you're turning to verse 10, I took the time to read verse 9 just because I was waiting. And look what it says. It says, Therefore I have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the Torah. And it says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? You know what this verse is getting at? Not just that there's only one God who created the heavens and the earth, but that all people have one God. So to whom do the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God apply? To everybody. Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Let's go to Mark chapter 13. By now you're thinking, what do all these scriptures have to do with one another? Just hold on. Mark chapter 13, verse 19. For in those days, what days? Yeah, we're talking about the tribulation period. There will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. So if you go back to the day when the earth was without form and void, the scripture says, it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 9. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. Add this to John 1 and Colossians 1. 
and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Yeshua the Messiah. Through him all things were created that were created and made. We mentioned Colossians 1. We may as well turn to Colossians 1. Comes right after Philippians. Verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God. What's that mean? God in heaven's a spirit. You can't see a spirit. You can't touch a spirit. You can't hug a spirit. You can't nail a spirit to a tree. But he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The firstborn over all creation, which doesn't mean that he's a created being. It means he was there at the beginning of creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So Messiah created them so that he could come down, dwell amongst us, and shed his precious blood that we might be saved. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. Who was there when it was without form and void? Who is the I? What's that? God. God? Uh huh. It's talking about our Messiah Yeshua. He created all things, He was there. And the heavens, they had no light. Remember I said when we were looking at Genesis 1, without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the water. It's talking about the fact that the Lord is going to remake the earth. Verse 24. Do you think it was an easy process on the earth, creation in the beginning? And how God molded it out of without form and void into that which has mountains and lakes and trees. Verse 24 says, I beheld the mountains and indeed they trembled. And all the hills moved back and forth. When God pours out his destructive judgments in the day of the Lord. Isaiah says the earth will reel to and fro like a drunkard. In fact, let's look at Isaiah chapter 24. It's called the Little Apocalypse. Isaiah 24, 1 to 6. Isaiah 24, verses 1 to 6. Let me give you a chance to find it. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. Distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. 
And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. What does that mean? Does that mean that this might happen? It means the Lord said it and it will come to pass. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. What's haughty mean? Proud. Proud, arrogant. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Is this talking about something historical? In the near term, it's about the Babylonian captivity. But in its ultimate fulfillment, we're talking about the day of the Lord. So what, do you, what can you say about the laws, the ordinance, and the everlasting covenant? They tried to get yeah, that they were everlasting, but somebody tried to change them. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwelt in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. If we go back to Jeremiah 4, verse 24, the near-term fulfillment of this is the destruction of Jerusalem. And like I said, was there a building left in Jerusalem? No. Was there a city wall left? No. Were there any people left in it? No. But what is that a picture of? the coming judgments in the day of the Lord. A little near-term fulfillment that lets us comprehend why you do not want to be here in the tribulation period. But I have lots of people that say, Wayne, Wayne, no, I want to be here. I want to be here to take care of my doggy. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, better get the dog to repent now. That's right. So back to Jeremiah 4, verse 25. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had, had what? Had fled. Why would they fly away? The ground shaking. They're afraid. Well, if even the birds of the heavens are afraid, so should we be. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. Those words focus more on Jerusalem. In verses 23 and 24, it focuses more on the end time. Why would God keep focusing on one and then the other? So that we can see the comparison. So that we can see the prophetic picture. The Bible's full of pictures, types and anti-types. Verse 27. For thus says the Lord. How's the word Lord spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, right? The name of the Lord when he said, I will be whom I will be. Then we skip 26. I don't think so. Okay, I was somewhere else. <laughs> okay. 
But think about it for a moment. Just close your eyes. In Exodus 3, God said, I will be whom I will be. Not I will be whom I will be whom I will be. How many categories does God divide us into? Two. My servants, my enemies. To his servants, he shows his hand of protection and mercy. What about to his enemies? Pours out his wrath. And you get to choose which of those categories you're in. Verse 27, for thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. When God destroyed Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian captivity, there was not a man left in Jerusalem. So what does he mean? I will not make a full end. There was the remnant in Babylon that then got to return. In the day of the Lord, will God wipe out 100% of the people? No, there will be a remnant. There's always a remnant. In fact, Isaiah had to name one of his sons, what? The remnant will return. Well, let's go back to look at the book of Ezra. At the return from the Babylonian captivity. To see, did God keep his word or not? Of course, y'all know the answer is, of course, God kept his word. Ezra chapter 9, verse 8. Ezra chapter 9, verse 8. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a pig in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Back to pop quiz time. Ezra, that book talks about one return. Nehemiah talks about another return. Did God have the people first rebuild Jerusalem and its walls or the temple? The temple was first. Ezra led the people back to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah later brought the people back to build up the walls of the city. There was temple worship going on even then? Yep. Didn't yep. So what was God's first thought? Worship. Let me let the people have a nice comfortable city to live in. Or let's let the people come back to worship me. Yeah. Yeah. So Ezra chapter 9 verse 8. He left us a remnant. In verse 15 of the same chapter. Ezra 9 15. O Lord the God of Israel. You are righteous. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Blessing God that he left us a remnant. Go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Isaiah sees in prophecy the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But he also sees in the future, verse 9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. If you've been watching the news, archaeologists lately think they might finally have found something left of Sodom and Gomorrah. When was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? In the days of Abraham and Lot. But what does verse 9 begin with? Unless who? The Lord of hosts. So not just prophetic and historic, but both. He allowed a remnant to come back from the Babylonian captivity. He will have a remnant that returns after the day of the Lord's tribulation period is completed. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. You will see the word remnant at least three times in these verses. Verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day. What day? Day of the Lord. That the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped to the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord. Notice how Lord is spelled. The Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 12, the Holy One of Israel says, will be in our midst in the kingdom, ruling and reigning. In truth, what is truth? Psalm 119, verse 142, Torah. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Mighty God, El Gabor, is that not one of the terms for Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? The mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness for the Lord, the God of hosts. I think if you look at the Hebrew, it's actually going to say, for my Lord, the Lord of hosts, will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. A determined end. He knows from the beginning who's going to be delivered. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read again about the remnant. Has God ever just wiped out all of mankind and started over? No, at the flood, there was Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Now, grant you, in the wilderness, God kind of thought about it, maybe. <laughs> but God always has a remnant. Jeremiah 31, verse 7. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I'll bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. If you look at Zechariah, it tells us 
what God means by a remnant. Does he mean a majority? No, that's not what he means by a remnant. Zechariah chapter 13. We'll do verses 7 to 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. That's the crucifixion of Messiah. Against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd. That's the crucifixion. And the sheep will be scattered. Israel was scattered around the world. Why? To take the gospel everywhere they went. Then I'll turn my hand against the little ones. Talking about the persecution Israel has suffered in the nations, waiting for them to repent. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. That one-third is the remnant in the day of the Lord. I'll bring the one-third through the fire. We refine them as silver is refined. How do you refine silver? You put it through the fire seven times. Fire pictures judgment. How many years of the tribulation period? Seven years. That's putting them through the fire seven times. And test them. As gold is tested. Remember Daniel told him that word was Bachan. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I'll say this is my people. And each one will say the Lord is my God. What does it mean by each one will say? What portion of Israel got saved in the day of the Lord and survived it? All of that one third, huh? Yipper. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 4. Back to Jeremiah chapter 4. To verse 28. For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black. What is for this? The destruction, the wrath of God being poured out. The earth itself is going to suffer. Grass is going to get burned up. Trees are going to get burned up. The seas are going to die. The mountains are going to fall. It says, because I have spoken, I have purposed and will not relent. What's that mean? God will not change his mind, right? God said it will happen. He will not change his mind. says, nor will I turn back from it. But that's not really what the verse says when you go in and look at the Hebrew. It says, he has not been moved to pity. He has not been moved to pity. Why? What's missing? What would cause God to move to pity? Repentance. So what is God trying to get across to the world? If you don't want to suffer through God's wrath, what should we do? Repent. Does repent mean to change your mind about who Yeshua is? No. Is there anything in scripture you can point to that says that? That repentance means stop sinning. Let's go up to Revelation. 
Revelation chapter 16, verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Not of their thinking wrong about Messiah, right? About their deeds. As Daniel told you, that Greek word is ergon. And what does that word ergon mean? Their works, their deeds, what they have done. Is that the only place we could point to? The answer is no. Go back to Revelation chapter 9. Start in verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor talk. And they did not repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Does that give us a good idea of what repentance is? Quit sinning. What is sin? Disobedience. Lawlessness. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. In the Old Testament, they don't use the term lawlessness. What term do they use in the Old Testament to mean the same thing? Iniquity. When you see iniquity, that is the Hebrew word avon. And that is the equivalent of lawlessness in the New Testament. So Jeremiah 4, verse 29. The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. Talking about Jerusalem here in particular. They should go into thickets and climb up on the rocks. Whoops, I have a question out there. Let me go back and get it. It's not that verse in Revelation about those who took the mark. Yes, but also others. There are others who will repent and some who will not. So verse 29, the whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up on the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man shall dwell in it. The primary emphasis here is the city of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of the Babylonian invasion. Literally, there was not a man left in it. The very last remnants of Jerusalem and Judah fl fled down to Egypt where they were killed. But why was there not a man left to dwell in it? Because of the sin and they refused to repent. God's going to tell them over and over in Jeremiah before it happens. Now you can put this off. You can cause me to turn away from it. All you got to do is repent. And there's hundreds, apparently, of false prophets saying, oh, God doesn't want you to repent. God's happy with you just as you are. Doesn't sound at all like today, does it? Yeah. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 17. God bless you. Jeremiah 17.
I know it's in Jeremiah, we'll get to it eventually, but there are just some scriptures that keep me awake at night. Because what are we supposed to do with that which we learn in the Old Testament? Share it and learn from it. Not just learn the lessons, but apply them. Learn from it. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 19 to 27 says, Thus says the Lord to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. It's kind of hard for one man to go to all the gates, right? But he can do one at a time, go in a circle. And say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. So who's Jeremiah prophesying to? Everybody. Everyone. Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day. Is it the Sabbath day or is it the day of the Sabbath? It makes a difference. It's the day of the Sabbath, the day that God rested in Genesis 2. Nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff that they might not hear nor receive instruction. It shall be if you heed me carefully, says the Lord. If you heed me how? What's that word? Carefully. To bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day. What does it mean to hallow? To carve it out? No, that's to hollow. To hallow is to set it apart, treat it as holy, different from the other days of the week. To do no work in it. Then shall enter the gates of the city, kings and princes, sitting on the throne of David, and riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. Right there, before I even read the rest of it, you know, did they choose to repent and keep the Sabbath day? They did not. And they shall come from the cities of Judah, from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, and from the lowland, from the mountains, and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. Which means what? The house of the Lord would not have been destroyed. It would have stayed. We would still have the temple built by Solomon to this day. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Why, oh why, does God put so much emphasis on the Sabbath day? It's a picture of the Messianic kingdom, it is. It's also a reminder that God created the heavens and the earth, that he is God and there is no other. But in Exodus 31, it's also called what? The sign. The sign. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 31. It's the sign that we worship the true and living God. Why do you suppose in the 4th century, Satan wanted to make sure people quit keeping the Sabbath? 
and started keeping another day instead. The believers were keeping it. Yeah, but I mean, what we're reading here. But back in the days of Israel, they were not keeping it like they were supposed to. That's why they went into captivity. That's why this great destruction fell. I heard a facetious minister this week preaching that Jesus reiterated nine of the ten commandments and he left out the Sabbath on purpose. And, you know, this is, this is like blasphemy coming from this preacher. And he said, I'll tell you right now, if we were required to keep the Sabbath, every person in here, probably every person in America, would have to be put to death because that was a commandment that came with a death penalty if you didn't do it. And he said, so that's the reason we don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore because we don't have to worry about that death penalty. You don't argue from a negative either. No, well, he was arguing from ignorance. <laughs> uh, anyway. The wages sin is what? I forget. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, it's a snake on the hand. Judgment day is coming. Exodus 31, 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. Whose words are these? Lord's. Lord's. Matthew 4, 4. Messiah, our Lord says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying. All people go, oh, oh see, it's not for us. It's only for the Jews. Yeah, read Jeremiah 31, who's the new covenant with? With Israel. If you are not grafted into Israel, then you don't need to read this. But you don't need to read the new covenant either. There are no Gentile covenants. There are no Gentile covenants except the Noahide covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But there's no new covenant. Okay. For the Gentiles. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, why the word saying again? Did God forget he just said it in the verse before? No, it means don't change a word. Surely, my Sabbath you shall keep. What does the word surely mean? Absolutely. It's real, right? Absolutely. My Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That you may know... That I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Where does Sunday come from? Worship of the sun god. Okay, we can get off your soapbox. Get back to Jeremiah chapter 4. First, in verse 13 it says, the version we have says, Surely my Sabbaths, plural, you shall keep. Right. Or it, singular, is a sign... I wonder if in the Hebrew it probably doesn't say, surely my Sabbath you shall keep. Because, I'll tell you in a minute. Because that is a sign. That's exactly it. You cannot say, well, I will keep the weekly Sabbath, but I won't keep the yearly Sabbath. I won't keep the Jubilee. I bet you that's it. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the commandment, inseparable. But Exodus 31, let me read to you from the Hebrew. You want just verse 13? Oh, that's, that's the one where it says, surely my yeah. Sabbaths. Yeah. Verse 13. <laughs> 
The word surely there is the word ach, which means but. But. My Sabbath. Oh, Tishmaru. You will observe. You will keep. You will guard. Key four. Oat, a sign. Heave this between me and between you for your generations to know, la da'at, to know that I, the Lord, am the one making you holy. It says it a little bit different in the uh, English translations. Yeah. What is Tishma You will keep or guard to protect and make holy. You know, that kind of stuff. And la da'at? La da'at, to know. La da'at's an infinitive, to know. And that's the emphasis on verse 13. Is the sign that you know that the Lord is your God is the Sabbath. Well then why in the scripture doesn't it somewhere say Gentiles are supposed to keep the Sabbath too? It says it right there in Deuteronomy. It says it in Deuteronomy. It says it all over the place. But Isaiah 56 is the one that always jumps to my mind. Because it says, you want to come into my kingdom? Then pay attention. Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 2, then up to verse 6. Thus says the Lord. Who's speaking? The Lord. Keep justice. That word keep is a commandment. Shomru, keep. It's the same word for guard. Justice. And do righteousness. How do you do righteousness? You keep God's commandments and treat people right, don't you? What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. For my Yeshua, my salvation is about to come. And my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. And the son of man lays hold on it. You've, you've heard me say before, those two words for man are not the same in Hebrew. The first one is Enosh, which can be re a reference just to the Jewish people, the children of Israel. But the second one is Adam. So everyone... To use both together is to say, I mean absolutely everyone who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. So right there, who is to keep from defiling the Sabbath? Only those who are born. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. That word who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. These are not suggestion type words. And verse 6 tells us why it's so important. Also the sons of the foreigner. Nikar is somebody born to another people in another place. Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. Remember Isaiah 66. There's only two categories. Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. That's the Messianic kingdom. Make them joyful in my house of prayer. Who called it the house of prayer? Quoting from Isaiah 56. Messiah did. 
Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Was that something historic? No, that's something future. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for whom? For all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather him others besides those who are gathered to him. But it tells us in verse 6, To serve the Lord. To love the name of the Lord. How do we love the Lord? 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, we keep his commandments. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast to my covenant. That verse 6, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath is which word do you think? Shomer, to guard. To guard. Can you read this portion of Jeremiah and think, well, God doesn't care about the Sabbath? I can't. All right, back to Jeremiah 4 before I get preachy. Verse 30. And when you are plundered, what will you do? There's who will you turn to when the enemies come and attack? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourselves with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. Verse 30 is very poetic. But it's describing the fact that every time Israel gets threatened, they go and make a treaty of defense with another nation like Egypt or in these last days with the United States. A question says the Noahide covenant, that's the rainbow in the sky that God will never again destroy the earth entirely by flood, is just the promise not to destroy the earth with water again. Isn't it? The answer is yes, that's exactly it. It's not seven or eight things that we sometimes see called the Noahide covenant. You are correct. Um, the children of Israel came up with something they called the Noahide laws, which are not in scripture. It's just the things that they say Gentiles have to do to be saved. Well, God gets to decide what people need to do. Salvation is by faith, not by works. But what does salvation produce? Changes. It changes you. It produces obedience. Well, a question on the what Israel came up with the Noahidic, whatever it is. Noahide laws. Was, was, I mean, was this part of that? There are two ways to be saved: the Jewish way and the Gentile way. Or is that no. that? It's a way of saying. You Gentiles, you don't have to keep the Sabbath and, and avoid eating pigs and stuff like that. You you'll be righteous anyway. Yeah, yeah. It was written by people who didn't want Gentiles to be saved. Okay. Why would Satan move people to preach that the Sabbath is not for us and the feasts and festivals are not for us. And eating clean, that's not for us. Is it because Satan is trying to get us to obey God? I've actually heard preachers preach that. That Satan is trying to get us to keep God's commandments so he'll reject us. 
When did Satan ever try and get us to keep God's commandments? Never, ever. Just a little confused. Back to Jeremiah 4. Verse 31. For I have heard a voice as of a woman in labor, meaning childbirth. The anguishes of her who brings forth her first child. I assume that hurts more than the others from this verse. The voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spreads her hands saying, Woe is me now for my soul is weary because of murderers. The scripture uses this picture of a woman in labor in childbirth pains over and over again to talk about the the pain and suffering when God pours out his wrath on ungodly people. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 26. I won't look at all of them. But Isaiah chapter 26, which as you know is the chapter in Isaiah that teaches about the rapture and the resurrection. So how odd that in the same chapter it's going to talk about the pains of childbirth, right? Isaiah chapter 26, verse 17. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. And of course, verse 19, just two verses later, is what that would start, your dead shall live. So it's associating the pains of childbirth with the tribulation period. Same in Isaiah chapter 66. They must not have had kidney stones back then. <laughs> if they did, they probably didn't know what they were or what was causing all the pain. I don't think childbirth was very common. Yeah. Isaiah 66, verses 7 to 8. Yeah, I'll let your wife talk to you about that when you get home. <laughs> Isaiah 66, verse 7. What is Isaiah 66 about? It's about the second coming of the Lord, his return in Revelation 19, 11, for the battle of Armageddon to establish the kingdom. And it says in verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. This is talking about the birth of Messiah in the hearts of Israel, like is described in Revelation chapter 12, when all Israel gets saved. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor... She gave birth to her children. So the salvation of Israel does not come at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. It comes in the first half. That's why I keep saying that it's part of the battle of Gog and Magog when it talks about not just Israel, but surrounding nations getting saved and coming to the Lord. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. She says in verse 9, Shall I bring to the time of delivery, I'm sorry, shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? In other words, the tribulation period has many purposes, one of which is to bring Israel to the point of salvation. 
And the Lord says, would I bring this upon the world and not bring Israel to salvation? What would that accomplish? Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24 also talks about the birth pains. Matthew 24 is the Olivet Discourse, right? Right after he cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and you won't see me anymore till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The apostles, the disciples want to know, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? Parousia meaning coming as a king into your kingdom. And at the end of the age, that is the age that precedes the messianic kingdom, when does that come to an end? And in verse 5, there's the first seal, the false messiah. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the messiah, will deceive many. Second seal opens in verse 6, the red horse, wars and rumors of wars. The end of verse 6 says, these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. You've not yet reached the goal after the second seal. In verse 7, you have seals 3 and 4, the famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And verse 8 says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That word is odin in Greek, O-D-I-N, and it means birth pains. So those first four seals don't bring it to the return of Messiah. They're just the opening salvo. Those first four seals are the false Messiah, war, famine, and pestilence. That kill what? A third of mankind. And these are just the beginning of the birth pains. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 3. For when they say, not you. In 1 Thessalonians 5, there's a they and there's a you. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Verse 3 will interest us more as we study through the book of Jeremiah. Because what were the false prophets prophesying? Peace and safety. God will not do that. We are just fine. He's going to protect us. We throw him a lamb now and then, so we're good. Is throwing him a lamb now and then anything in God's eyes? No, because what were they supposed to do before they brought the lamb? They were supposed to repent. To bring the lamb without repentance is to waste God's time. And the lamb. Of course, then they ate the lamb, so. Let's go back to chapter 5 of Jeremiah. Verse 1. Run to and fro. 
through the streets of Jerusalem, run to and fro. Where have we heard that before? I remember a psalm, but I remember Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, I mean Daniel. Let's go to Daniel. That's the other D, Daniel. Kind of like the other white meat. Daniel chapter 12. What's Daniel chapter 12 about? The day of the Lord. So verses 1 to 3, let's just look at them quickly to see the time period. At that time, what's that mean? The time of the tribulation period. Michael, Michael, who is like God? He's the archangel who stands watch over which nation? Israel. Israel. Shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. That's in Revelation 12. So Daniel 12 and Revelation 12 take place concurrently. And there should be a time of trouble. What do we call that time? Jacob's, Jacob's trouble. Such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. That's terrifying for those of us who remember the Holocaust. How many of you think the Holocaust was an eternity ago? My brother was born during the Holocaust. It's not that long ago. But this is going to be so much worse. It's as if the Holocaust was a minor problem. And at that time, what time? In the tribulation period, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who's found written in the book. What book? The Lamb's book of life. Yep. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's Isaiah chapter 26, right? And it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at all those verses shortly. Or next week, depending. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a problem here. Why is it many of those who sleep in dust of the earth shall awake? Not all. Because some already were resurrected when Messiah was resurrected. That's exactly right. So what do we call the resurrection when it says some to everlasting life? That's called the first resurrection. That's what it's called in Revelation chapter 20. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those people will stand which judgment? Great white throne judgment. Yep, you guys are up to speed. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness. If you're turning them to righteousness, what do you turn them away from? Lawlessness. So that's leading people to repentance. Will shine like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So specifically, he focuses running to and fro to the time of the end. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know. And seek in her open places. If you can find a man, which literally means any person, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. So the short-term fulfillment is 
Let's go back to Jerusalem and Judah at the time of the Babylonian captivity. What does God say? If you find me one righteous person other than Jeremiah, because he's the one searching, I'll pardon him. What does that tell you about the remnant in Jerusalem at that point? Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, the Babylonian captivity happens in three ways. God told the people, when Babylon comes, go into captivity. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and those guys, they obeyed God and went at the first. Then more went, repented and went in the second. And these that are left in Jerusalem have, have literally given God the finger and said, we're not going anywhere. Because you're going to protect us. We demand it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's not demand anything from God. Let's plead for it. Hmm. It's just hard to imagine that they can't find a single person who executes judgment and seeks the truth. But what did Messiah say in Matthew chapter 7 would characterize the time of the end? Will we even find faith when you come? Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. There are few who find it. Why? He immediately turns and starts talking about the false teachers, the false prophets. Who, like the false prophets in Jerusalem at the time of the Babylon captivity, were saying, hey, there's nothing to worry about. God would not allow this to happen. 2 Peter chapter 3. What does Peter say? Is one of the signs that it's about over? 2 Peter chapter 3. In the last days, who's going to come? Scoffers. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Meaning what? They'll do what they want to do. Don't tell us that we need to be obedient to God. We'll do what we want. Saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willfully forget. Why do they listen to the false teachers? Because they want to listen to the false teachers. Yeah. Oh well. Back to chapter 5, verse 2. Though they say, oh, here it is. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. I mean, this is how much they care about the name of the Lord. They take an oath. They swear in his name, knowing they're lying the full time. 
They have no fear that God's going to bring judgment because, hey, we're circumcised. We're the descendants of Abraham. We can do what we want. How'd that work out for them back then? How's it going to work out in the future? Let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. Oops, I have two questions out there while you're turning. Let me see what they are. Wide path. It says, presumably people on that path are sentinel seeking God, but they simply go the wrong way. So they are people who believe that they are serving God, that they're on the path to heaven, but they are not. So the rest of our question, or the person who's asking, is correct. Those that are on the wrong path are not talking about the unbelievers who don't care about God. They're not on a path. These people on both paths think they're on the way to heaven. But the majority are not. Well, then the person says, not sinless. Essentially, no people on that path are essentially seeking God, but yes, you're correct. Okay. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. Have you found it yet? Okay. It says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. What does it mean to profane the name of the Lord by swearing falsely? If you lie and swear to it in the name of God, what have you said the name of God means? Nothing. Nothing. You've made it of no value, of no consequence. That shows how much you care about the Lord. And yet... They're claiming, but Lord, Lord. And that sounds like Matthew 7 again, doesn't it? Verse 21. But Lord, Lord. And what did the Lord say in Luke 6, verse 46? But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Yep. Go to Hosea chapter 10. Hosea's name means salvation. So what is the book about? Salvation. Hosea chapter 10, verse 4. Talking about false prophets, false teachers, and those who follow their ways. Hosea 10, 4. They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. What is hemlock? Is that a nice grain for making bread? No, it's poison. So why is their crop that they intend to be life-giving full of poison? When they're swearing falsely on the name of God, they're blaspheming God. They're demonstrating no faith whatsoever in God. Go to Zechariah 5.4. It brings the curses from Deuteronomy. It brings the curses. It sure does. Zechariah chapter 5 verse 4. Speaking of curses. 
I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief, and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. If that's all you think about the name of God, when judgment comes, you're in deep, deep trouble. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, but not for the verses you think. Unless, of course, you think like I do, and then it is the verses that you think. Verses 33 to 37. Again you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely. Do we just read that? Yeah. But shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Meaning you swear in the name of the Lord, you do it as if you're doing it to or for the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. People understand, misunderstand these verses sometimes. And... You, you've seen TV shows where they bring out a Bible and somebody says, I'm not going to swear in the Bible. It says in the Bible, don't swear in the name of God. What these verses mean is, be such an honest person that you don't have to swear an oath on the name of God to be believed. That people will know when Bill speaks, he lives by his word. Have that kind of reputation for honesty. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 5. Verse 3. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? What is the truth? Torah. Torah. Psalm 119 verse 142. So how does the Lord expect us to live? According to the Torah. You have stricken them. Meaning you have brought judgment upon them. But they have not grieved. Which means God brought judgment upon them. To call them to repentance. And they refuse to repent. You have consumed them. Talking about two thirds of the country. Have been taken out into Babylon already. But they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. What does that word return mean? Repent. So in Matthew 23, the Lord says, I've sent you prophet after prophet calling for repentance and you refuse. He says you slay the prophet. You kill the prophets. You slay the prophets. I send more and you kill them too. What will God think about America today? Do we, as a nation, hear the call of repentance and turn to God? Not openly. 
Or are we starting to persecute those who do call for righteousness? Germany did one Holocaust. America has done ten. Sad, isn't it? It is terrible. Verse 4. Therefore I said. What's the therefore mean? Because of all this. Because I called them to repent. I gave them reason to repent. I gave them time to repent. And they refused. Therefore I said, surely these are poor. Does that mean they have no money? Is that the kind of poor? No. no. Spiritually poor. Spiritually poor. That's not exactly what they're getting at here, though. The eye is not the Lord. The eye is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is trying to suggest maybe it's not their fault. Surely these are poor, for they, they are foolish. For, because, here's why. It's true, but for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Meaning, maybe they're just unlearned. Maybe they just need to be taught. Maybe they just need to have a prophet sent to them. Of course, the man who's talking to God is the prophet that God sent to them. But it's breaking his heart for God to say, there's not going to be a person left in Jerusalem or Judah. I'm going to destroy them each and every one down to the last person. And Jeremiah is trying to find some excuse. And what excuse will work? What excuse is good enough? None. They have refused to return. Does refused mean, whoopsie, it was a boo-boo? Or did they make a conscious choice? Does it remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 4? Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Right after Thessalonians comes Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4. Verses 2 to 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Teaching. Yeah, remember Matthew 28. Teach them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires. Meaning what? They don't want to hear the sound doctrine. They don't want to hear a call to repentance. They don't want to hear that God is not happy with you. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Boy, I'm glad that doesn't describe today. Mm. Back to Jeremiah 5. Verse 5. So verse 4 was maybe they just are unlearned. Maybe they need to be taught. So verse 5 is I will go. This is again Jeremiah. I'll go to the great men and speak to them. For they have known the way of the Lord. The judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. That's America. 
So Jeremiah says, I'll go and I'll try. I'll try again. They have known the way of the Lord. They knew it in the past. Moses taught it. On the days of Joshua, they lived it. Of course, when Joshua was dead, then they fell away again. So he's saying, there was a time that they knew the way of the Lord, that they knew the judgment of their God. Maybe I could restore it to them. And then do you see the heart fall before the next verse? Or even the next sentence in verse 5? But these have all together broken the yoke and burst the bonds. What yoke and bonds are they talking about? Torah, they've completely set aside the commandments of God. Why? Because they don't want to hear it. Practice in the mirror when you get home. Standing before the Lord on Judgment Day and explaining that, yeah, I know you commanded it, but I didn't want to do it. So tough. I, I, until, until you realize that ain't going to work. Verse 6, Therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them. Are we talking about captivity? Yeah, you know we are. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them. That lion is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 4. Let's go to Daniel 7, verse 4. Daniel chapter 7, verse 4. Of the four great beasts, the first was like a lion. And who was that? That was Babylon. So who's going to destroy Jerusalem and Judah in the old days? Babylon. Back to Jeremiah 5, verse 6. Therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the desert shall destroy them. Let's go to John chapter 10. Why do you know about wolves? They like lambs. Especially with a little ketchup, don't they? Little mint jelly, huh? John 10, verse 12. But a hireling who is not the shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Messiah is the shepherd. The hireling who's not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. So the wolf here is another sign of captivity, slaughter, and scattering. And then back in Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 6, after the wolf comes the leopard. A leopard will watch over their cities. The leopards in Daniel chapter 7 verse 6. Daniel chapter 7 verse 6. In other words, these are all images of impending judgment and doom. Daniel chapter 7 verse 6. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on his back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. What does that represent? That was Greece. 
Think all the way back to the time of Hanukkah. What have the Grecians always tried to force on Israel? Greek language, Greek culture, assimilation. assimilation. Turn away from that desert God and turn to our nice civilized gods, our pantheon. Sad. In verse 6 goes on, after leper watch over their cities to say, everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces. How many waves of the Babylonian captivity? Three. How many symbols here to kill, destroy, and scatter? Three. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. Hmm. The word transgression is a word that is stronger than just sin. The Hebrew word is pesha, and it refers to a sin that is not an accidental, I forgot, I didn't think. This is a deliberate in your face. Yes, Nancy. Maybe. Yeah, you're getting bad feedback. Something. Okay. We, we couldn't hear it, so sorry. But the word transgression, Pesha, is stronger than just sin. It's a deliberate and intentional, I meant to do it, I don't care. Punish me if you want to. I don't care. And the word for backsliding here means simply turning away from God. It's a term for anti-repentance, if you will. It's a deliberate turning away from God. We think of it as accidental today. And that's not what it is. And when you observe the people who are backsliding, that is not what it is. It's not accidental. Right. And we have come to the end of our time, but we pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 7. You're going to see the Lord lamenting. How shall I pardon you for this? How can I? If it's deliberate in your face, spitting in my face, you're not going to do it. God says, how can I not punish? What did he say in Deuteronomy 28? What happened if they turn away from God to pagan idolatry and immorality? That he would send them into captivity. So he says, what am I supposed to do? You spit in my face. I have to punish you. Or I'm a liar. And does God lie? No. And we'll talk about that, I'm guessing, next week. 